Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. You're listening to Your Grace is Enough, written and recorded by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Matt Marr. The nine-time Grammy nominee and GMA Dove Awards Songwriter of the Year will join us in a few moments. Matt Marr is one of the leading songwriters in contemporary Christian music. Raised in Canada, he studied jazz at Arizona State University before launching an artist career and releasing his major label debut, Empty and Beautiful, in 2008. The album spawned the top five single, Your Grace is Enough. Matt went on to find further success as an artist with self-penned songs such as Alive Again, Hold Us Together, All the People Said Amen, and the double platinum single, Lord I Need You. He has been nominated for nine Grammy Awards and was named the GMA Dove Award Songwriter of the Year in 2015. Finding great success with parenthetical titles, Matt has written four songs that have hit number one on Billboard's Christian Airplay chart for him as an artist. They are Because He Lives, Amen, then Glory, Let There Be Peace, then Alive and Breathing, no parentheses, and finally The Lord's Prayer, It's Yours. Additionally, he's hit number one by writing for other artists, including I Lift My Hands with Chris Tomlin and Come As You Are with David Crowder. Further successes writing for other artists include Chris Tomlin's I Will Rise, Third Day's Soul on Fire, and Cody Carnes' Run to the Father, among many others. Matt's most recent album as a songwriting artist is called The Stories I Tell Myself. Part 1 so, Paul, I want to read you something that I uh, recently came across. This is a transcript of a radio advertisement from 1958. And this is just a, a portion of the radio ad, but I want to read it to you. Okay. It says, Lots of the professional songwriters of today who are financially independent were once amateur songwriters waiting for that one big break. These people learned the hard way that success does not come to you. You have to go out and at least meet it halfway. In order for the right people to hear your songs, you have to take it to them, and there is no better way to present your song than to have it on your own record so they can listen to it played by professional musicians. Hmm. Now, I read that, yeah. and I thought, well, that's basically what we say on that's, here all the time yeah, about Pearl advice. Snap Studios. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, so can you guess who the person was who, who read this radio ad in 1958? Um, that sounds like Desi Arnaz. <laughs> <laughs> it was Jerry Mathers. Yeah, uh, no, uh, <laughs> that was the young beeve. <laughs> right. uh, no, that was actually Willie Nelson. Wow. And uh, in 1958, Willie Nelson was an aspiring songwriter and a radio DJ. And this is a transcript of one of the radio ads that he read uh, back at that time. But I thought, man, Willie Nelson is proof positive that uh, a guy who was writing songs and then got somebody else to make the demos of him kind of paid off for him. I think it did. I think he found <laughs> his big break. Yeah. Maybe 50 times. And, and if, you know, and, and maybe there's people who don't realize that before Willie Nelson was Willie Nelson, the artist, he was Willie Nelson, the songwriter. Yeah. Crazy by Patsy Cline. That was Willie Nelson. Songs like yeah. Nightlife, Funny How Time Slips Away, 
uh, Hello Walls. I mean, this guy wrote like so many country classics and it just struck me as like, hey, here's Willie doing an ad when he was a DJ, but it's an ad that he obviously is. It was something that he did. Yeah. And uh, man, who doesn't want to be like Willie Nelson? And you know what? The principles have not changed. Like you said, that advice holds true today. Now, what's different at that time? Think about the number of people you had to bring together to make that demo. Oh, you'd have to hire a whole slate of musicians, engineers, get studio time. I mean, you're talking about a lot of money. Yeah. A lot of time, a, a lot of forethought. And now when you have something like Pearl Snap Studios, this is one-stop shopping. Basically, all you have to do is get online, send in the file of your new song, and then wait for the magic to come back to you. So wow. I, I think even at the time, Willie would have been, he would have felt like this came down from a cloud. Oh, this well, he would it would have been unbelievable. Yeah. Now, in Willie's time, this is what he says in the ad. He says, so if you are a songwriter and you would like to have a professional sounding record of your own tune, mm. grab a pencil and paper because I am going to give you the address. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to modify that a little bit and say, yeah. So if you are a songwriter and you would like to have a professional sounding record of your own tune, grab a computer or a smartphone and go to <laughs> pearlsnapstudios.com. So, Scott, in recent weeks, there was a story that kind of dominated the music headlines. Um, there are specific music headlines. By Taylor the way. Swift's three-night run in Nashville? <laughs> well, yeah, that kind of dominated <laughs> my uh, social media news feed. But I'm talking about the Ed Sheeran uh, copyright case oh, yeah. um, where he was basically being uh, sued by uh, the heirs of one of the creators of the song, Let's Get It On, right. um, for his song, Thinking Out Loud, which kind of shares a similar music bed, a similar groove, similar chord progression. And they took that all the way to copyright court to try to to win a copyright infringement case against Ed Sheeran. I'm... I'm let there be no question what my thoughts on this case were. I I was, this was a ridiculous case that yeah. I didn't, that shouldn't have even seen the inside of a courtroom, in my no. opinion. And I was so relieved when I saw that he uh, came out on top and won this. I think a lot of songwriters in particular are pretty nervous about this because yeah. uh, the the crux of the case, as I understand it, or the, or the argument of the plaintiffs yeah. and it, the, it, it wasn't Marvin Gaye's estate. It right. was Ed Townsend, uh, Ed Townsend who yeah. was one of the producers and writers of let's get it on. Um, but the, the crux of it was it had the same chord progression. And I mean, <laughs> there's only so <laughs> yeah. many chords, right? Uh, and the number of popular songs that share the same chord progression it's Especially in, in rock music, yeah. you know, is unreal. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, even if they had laid down the chord progression by listening to the Marvin Gaye record and playing the same chords in the same order at the same tempo. Yeah. But using no other part of the Marvin Gaye record, I would say there is zero copyright infringement. Zero. And, and that's what's so crazy about it. Like, I, I don't even know how it got to this point because... You, you just, you can't copyright that. You can't copyright a chord progression. And if you could, I don't know what the rest of us are going to do. I don't know how you're going to continue to write original songs at that point. Well, um, I think the estate of Willie Dixon uh, could basically yeah, sue exactly. everyone who ever wrote a blues or rock yeah. song. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. that would uh, that w- that would be good for them. Yeah, it would have opened the floodgates, I think, to lawsuits, you know, reaching back into the past. And then it would have changed precedent you know, on a huge level for songwriting in, in the future. Um, and I've seen, you know, multiple defenses of Ed Sheeran's song. You know, one of them I saw, Greg Fillinganes, who's one of the greatest 
keyboard players of all time. Just, yeah. you know, played on Thriller, millions of records. The, the guy was everywhere. And, and he did a great job of breaking down why the chord progressions were actually different. You know, there was uh, the second chord in particular. One song, if, if you're into music, uh, you'll understand maybe what I'm saying. If you're not, just plug your ears for a second. But there was a one <laughs> over not, three. Why are you listening to this podcast? Exactly. Good, good point. <laughs> but a one over three, which is a, a chord interval. Uh, it was the second chord in one of the songs. And a minor three. And those are different chords. Yeah. In, in the other song, had a minor three. So one over three in one song versus a minor three in the other. And he did a great job of, of, of painting that and showing the differences. But I watched it and I thought, you shouldn't even have to do that. Yeah. Like, you shouldn't even have to do that because you can't copyright the chord progression, period. Like, that's full stop. Yeah. Um, so even though they were slightly different, it's just, it's crazy to think that we could have been in that position as songwriters in the room where you're, like, worried. Well, is there a song anywhere in the history of the pantheon of songs that uses this chord progression? We're <laughs> in trouble if so. Yeah. Um, it, it would have had far-reaching implications to all of us. Well, and I think the reason why this is frightening to a lot of songwriters is you look at a similar case also involving a Marvin Gaye song. Uh, I think it was Got to Give It Up, right? That yeah. With, with the Blurred Lines blurred was lines. the modern song. Yeah. Got to so a few years back, for those who might not remember, uh, uh, Robin Thicke had a song called Blurred Lines. Uh, Pharrell was a writer on that song. And there was a lawsuit. I believe that time it was from the Marvin Gaye estate, if I remember correctly, yeah. um, that they had infringed on the song Got to Give It Up. And they actually lost. The The Marvin yeah. Gaye estate was, uh, they prevailed. And um, and the decision was wrong, in my opinion, because yeah. the the I think the actual term that they used was like they copied the vibe. Yeah. And <laughs> it's unbelievable to me to think when you're talking about copyrightable material, um, you're talking about melody. Yeah. Right. And you're talking about things that are measurable. You're, you're yeah. talking about um chord progression obviously not in isolation as we said but to some degree yeah lyric melody chord yeah. progression rhythm all these things work together to create you know a song but vibe like yeah. can i copyright my vibe like you yeah, should i should yeah. i should be like <laughs> if you have a long beard and wear a hat all yeah. the time then you're copying you you stole my vibe <laughs> yeah. and i'm coming for you um but that case was was wrong. And yeah. look, I love like I'm a huge Marvin Gaye fan and I don't want to see anyone infringe on Marvin Gaye's copyrights. And I want to see Marvin Gaye's estate get every dime that they deserve. And yeah. I want to see every creator get every design. And I want to see every creator get every dime that they deserve for what they've done. But these are overreaches and yeah. it has a negative impact on writers rooms. And, and as you said, people feeling frightened to, to to take a leap for fear that it's going to potentially infringe on something. And so I think because of that blurred lines case, that's why a lot of writers were watching this one because, you know, they're thinking, well, this could go sideways. This could go the wrong way. You know, you'll be happy to know that some of my recent royalty checks have been about a dime. So I am getting every dime <laughs> that you deserve. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Um, you know, I, I agree with you. I think that blurred lines case was super problematic and and created a negative precedent that I think some of this, some of that ground has been won back yeah. by the outcome of this Sheeran case. Uh, I will say what I think got really sticky about the Blurred Lines case was that they had kind of record of some stated intent that they mm. were trying to yeah. approximate the vibe of that song, yeah. which I think is, it, it, made, it made it sticky, but I, th by that same token, it was not the right decision. You cannot copyright a vibe, yeah. and producers around the world, they felt the earth shake. Yeah. Like, oh no, because 
yeah, how can you copyright that? So that that was a, a very regrettable decision. Yeah. I, I'm sad it turned out that way. Um, this one, I think, restored some of my faith in the process. Although, let me say this about the process. And I'm no you know judicial historian here. Is that right? I know. I'm not. <laughs> and I believe in the American system of how, you know, jury trial and things like that. But I don't think things like this should be going to a jury. No. I don't think just 12, you know, just random people off the street should be brought in to make, you know, expert decisions on things like that. No. They have musicologists. Yeah. I and mean, there are people that do this. And there should be some kind of arbitration that happens under the, under the you know, uh, observation or leadership of a musicologist. Yeah. Where like a board. I mean, there is a copyright board that sets rates and stuff like that. There almost has to be an arm of a yeah. copyright board that is specifically set up to to hear these types of things. And and look, I'm sure there are frivolous lawsuits brought all the time. Yeah. And, and maybe the, our judicial system has to weed out some of those. But then if some are, are, are ruled to have some degree of merit, then, yeah, they need to go to the, to the experts, you know, the true jury of musical peers who can judge whether or not this is infringement. Um, Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't bode well, I think, because you are talking about something that the average person on the street, they're not going to grasp musical concepts. And if you just get somebody who doesn't know anything about music and go, listen, this is the exact same chord progression. Then they might go, Oh my gosh, it is the exact same. Right. And they don't understand why that's, you know, not actual copyright. Cause this is not just millionaire against millionaire. Yeah. These are cases that set precedent for an entire industry, an entire yeah. gr- a group of people that are building their livelihoods on this. And there is there is a place in music and in creation for adaptation. There's a place for reference to previous songs. There, there's a place for using songs that are in the public domain. Um, you know, our guest this week, Matt Marr, has done a great job um, of taking uh, hymns yeah. that are in the public domain and sort of repurposing some parts of those songs, uh, and it's it's an interesting difference. Yeah. W- when when you look at it's it's all you know completely in the open, and it's these songs are already sort of a part of of the folk music, uh, particularly of the faith. Yeah. Um, and what Matt does is really cool is that he sort of brings them into the light with sort of new melodies, right. and some new phrasing, and then builds new verses around them, and uh, in a way, sort of like resurrecting some of these songs. From what might no become, pun intended. <laughs> wow, well done. <laughs> um, but you know, some of these old hymns that that might be faded to eventual obscurity, right? But they find new life um, with the way Matt puts them out. Yeah, and, and in in a way, I mean, not that I'm comparing what Matt does to uh, to what Pharrell was trying to do, but they were like trying to pay tribute, kind of, to Marvin Gaye, right. not rip off Marvin Gaye, right, right. Um, but to actually, I mean, they talked about like capturing that vibe because it's a cool vibe, and Marvin Gaye is cool, and and Matt Mars like, hey. You know, Jesus is cool. So, uh, (laughs) you know, I'm shining a light. Like, I'm not trying to take anything away from these hymn writers, but I'm finding the relevance and the things about those hymns from, you know, previous generations that I want to update and bring into the light, introduce to a new generation. Right. And, you know, to think that uh, that that Charles Wesley uh, might rise from the dead and, you know, come after Matt for using his song. I don't think that That's would terrifying. happen. That's <laughs> terrifying. It's, it's a frightening uh, <laughs> yeah. thought. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that, that it's all about, because there are bad actors out there. Yeah. There are people who are ripping off ideas. Like, there are lawsuits that come up that are completely reasonable. Like, right. that, that where someone has, has, in fact, stolen. But there's right. such a difference between 
drawing inspiration, yeah. recasting something in a light that resonates with people, you know, today versus just stealing something and pretending like it's yours. Right. And to the Twitter warriors out there who, who take maybe an opposite position and want to have this argument, I, I got news for you. You're John Mayer waiting on the world to change. You got to kind of thank Curtis Mayfield for that vibe. You know, <laughs> right. uh, Charlie Poof and Wiz Khalifa, see you again. You got to thank Curtis for that one too. You know, yeah. there there is there's a sense we're all sort of standing on the shoulders of right. the musicians that came before us and and uh, in a lot of cases bringing vibes back from the past into into a new modern and and to great effect and yeah. and winning fans that way and winning fans for the new music and the old music it's great when they can work hand in hand like that and and I love that Matt does that uh it's great I think for our recognition of the old songs and it's great for bringing these songs into the future um and one of my favorites which we're going to open up talking the conversation with is a song only good will grow yeah um which doesn't lean back on an old hymn but it pulls these Roy Orbison vibes oh yeah and recorded in Roy's house yeah <laughs> which is super cool so uh I, I was excited by this conversation I'm excited to uh, for everybody to listen to it today yeah, I'm excited too, and and mostly I think it's just time to kind of put the spotlight on someone else for a minute because I am getting nervous that the more I talk, people might be trying to steal my vibe. <laughs> Part two. Matt, welcome to Songcraft. Hey, thanks for having me. So uh, Scott's and my relationship is largely based on the the music that existed between about 1955 and 1995. I would say that's the, <laughs> the, the foundational concrete of our relationship. And so I rarely send him a song like that that's a new song and say, check this out. But you put out a song called Only Good Will Grow uh, this year. And I immediately had to send it to Scott. And I was like, listen to this song because it had these great... Roy Orbisonisms in it, and and it was such a, a awesome spot on treatment of such a great classic sound. Only light will shine on the sacred garden. Every season, new light. Death is long departed. Plant to a tree. Roots have wings. Your children will forever sing Only good will grow I want to open asking you about that song um, and where it came from uh, and sort of what what it felt like to put a, a beautiful song like that out into the world. Man, well, first of all, just thank, thank you. Um, as an artist, uh, as a songwriter, who fell it into being an artist. Hmm. Um, I uh, like, I've always, I've, I've, I just recognize that typically the, the song that I love the most, isn't the one that most people tend to want to listen to. Hmm. And, um, and there's been a couple of like happy accidents with that. Um, and it's just been cool to get feedback from other friends who like musicians people that i admire and that i respect which like paul i've i've mad respect for you as a songwriter oh, um thank you yeah and um so the the deal with the song um uh, is that it was inspired uh, by sort of this weird website <laughs> that 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 cataloged the story about the friendship between Johnny Cash and Roy Orbison. So ba basically what happened was I'd been invited to uh, a retreat 
for like burnt out church leaders at the end of 2020 and which there were <laughs> there were quite a yeah, lot more than one there weren't a lot of people at the retreat but that, that it was sort of like a growing trend basically like people were just kind of abandoning ship and um so they said hey could you come and there's like 20 guys and everyone's distanced and like you know because it was still at the height of covid and so so I showed up at this house in Hendersonville, which is north of Nashville, and it was Marty Stewart's old house. And um, it it was built on the stretch of land that Roy Orbison and Johnny Cash both owned, um, huge chunks of it. Um, and basically, the story was Roy and Johnny were literally next door neighbors in the 60s. And in 1969, his Roy's house burnt down and killed two of his kids in the fire. Jeez. And this was, uh, I think, a year after his first wife died in a motorcycle accident. Mm. So it's just sort of tragedy on tragedy. And Johnny flew home to be with them. And he bought the land where the house was. And, you know... Uh, he basically said, I promise you only good will grow on this land. Wow. And the, the land kind of, it, uh, kind of fell a little bit into disrepair and the trees stopped growing fruit, all this stuff happened. And then eventually what happened was Marty Stewart, um, bought this house that got built that it's sort of, no one really knows the full story. I don't know what the whole story is. Someone said it was Roy Orbison's party house because um, this house had no bedrooms. It was a pool house wow. <laughs> that was next door to Roy Orbison's second house. And it looked like a log cabin on steroids. It it, 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 it looked like a cross between like uh, a Cracker Barrel and a David Lynch film. Like, I don't know how else to describe it. It was it's very, there, there is a, there was an energy to it that, uh was palpable it was like a thin space c.s lewis talks about spaces where heaven and earth the distance gets thin so anyways i kept that story and four months later found out i wrote a letter to the owner of the house because marty sold it to uh th this family who are extremely generous with it um and i wrote a letter to the to the owner a guy named joe ritchie and said hey could we borrow this house for six weeks <laughs> and myself and some friends of mine who are in a band called the lone bellow each want to make an album there mm. and he said yes which shocked us so we moved my whole studio into the house and the first night we got the house i wrote that song wow, wow. so i kept the title in my notes on my phone for like i don't know nine months eight months and every so often i'd just go in and stare at it and just jot down ideas like what does that phrase make me think of or feel yeah and uh and eventually um eventually it turned into uh it turned into the song um i i just you know and often when you talk about a song and you talk about the fact that it kind of references um classic sounds or or classic themes uh, it's almost like, well, no, that's, you know, it's, it's a new creation, but I, that song, it, I think you'd say admittedly pulls from those kind of sonically, those, those Orbisonisms, as I like to call them. 100% start to finish. It, 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 it basically became the tribute with in the album. Hmm. 
you know, it, it felt like I was trying to appease uh, whatever force <laughs> governs that house. Yeah. We, you know, uh, I, it was, it was, it was basically it, it 100% was like a, a votive offering. Yeah. Uh, I, when I went to that retreat, I got home that night and I, I did, I deep, did a deep dive into the whole story of the traveling Wilburys. Yeah. And, uh, which is that, that was where I found out about Roy Orbison was the traveling Wilburys. I remember the first time I saw the video for handle me with care. And I was like, okay, I know that's Tom Petty. Uh, that guy, I, is that a, he's a beetle. Right. Um, <laughs> and then it was like, I don't know who Bob, I mean, I was like, you know, I was, it was, I was in the sixth grade and it was like, I don't, I didn't know who Dylan was other than that guy looks haggard. And, um, <laughs> but then all of a sudden this, like the, this this figure steps in the frame wearing all like a black shirt and black hair and black sunglasses and he sings in my mind like the the entire heart of that whole song i'm so tired of being lonely i still still have some love to give which when you read the story of what roy orbison went through in the 70s that was literally it's one of the most honest confessions in pop music Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's a it's it's coming from a guy who spent a decade basically existentially struggling with his career his soul um his life and he'd probably gotten to a point where you know uh it's like i i really just want to be i I, you know we all want to be seen we all want to be noticed yeah yeah yeah. You know, it raises a, an interesting question because you talk about being a kid and, um, you know, kind of discovering uh, Bob Dylan via the Traveling Wilburys. Like this was a, an unfamiliar person. And one of the things that you've done very well in your songwriting career is taken um, old hymns and kind of repurposed them or, or pulled uh, parts out of those hymns and incorporated them into more of a modern context. Um, so now I'm, I'm kind of wondering, okay, is this a guy who grew up in, in churches just kind of hearing uh, hymns or were you immersed in pop music, but you were just too young to have, you know, really been aware of Bob Dylan. What were the things that were kind of making up the, the musical stew when you were, um, you know, in your early years when you were still just kind of becoming yeah. aware of what, what music was and, and what moved you about it? Yeah. I mean, I was, I was much more the latter. I mean, if I grew up in church, I grew up, uh, I grew up outside of church <laughs> church. Church for me was the place where I didn't age. I was still thinking about God, like a, like a 10 year old. Hmm. And, um, and, and the rest of my life was where I grew up. And, you know, rock and roll primarily was what did it. You know, I was, I was the youngest kid on my street. I had four cousins who lived next door to me. Uh, The youngest were a set of fraternal twins, boy and girl, and they were six years older than me. I had a brother three years older than me. So I would go over to their house, you know, and the older, my older cousins that were like older sisters, they'd be listening to everything from the police to you know andrew lloyd weber soundtracks to um michael bolton <laughs> to Wide i range. mean i remember my cousin she gave me a she played for me a monks record 
which was like this this like really obscure sort of like punk band from the uk and i remember the cover the album cover it was my first time of experiencing what a what a vinyl cover could do yeah. to your imagination because it was a nun with like fishnet stockings on smoking a cigarette <laughs> and um but then like i remember the first time i heard hell's bells which was like my older cousin and and he played me a lot of classic rock so like i first time i ever heard bob o'reilly from the who i didn't realize that pete townsend was using an uh a sequencer mm. on like an oberheim i thought he was actually playing each note individually on a keyboard so i remember going home in the sixth grade and going how in the heck did he do this (laughs) just staring at a piano going how do you hit that many notes in like this at the same time Um, how far did you get (laughs) uh yeah about about two minutes and i just went back to playing the theme from beverly hills cop so like i i mean i was i was a kid in the 80s so like i grew up with american top 40 top 40 uh, back in the 80s and even 90s was a snapshot of all of music mm. so top 40 was here are the most successful songs in all these different genres yeah. so here's the most like there are these outliers that pop up you know so you, the diversity in top 40 back then sort of meant that you were inherently kind of exposed to at least things that relatively didn't sound the same yeah and the the church thing happened later that happened uh in my 20s uh, honestly okay so a lot of those hymns must have been sort of discoveries for you as well then yeah like i didn't grow up i grew up catholic so like i knew glory and praise i knew all like the kind of early 70s you know the saint louis jesuits was a group of 10 jesuits and they wrote those catholic hymn songs be not afraid on eagle's wings uh you know, wow. let us build a city of God. It was literally a group of guys all living in one community in St. Louis. And they wrote all those together. And um, it revolutionized music in the Catholic Church wow. for, for a period of time. And so for me, when I was in my 20s, and I ended up moving to Arizona, and I sort of run into charismatic Christians and have this like conversion experience. I had a grandmother who was Baptist. And she gave me a Baptist hymnal. And eventually I started kind of looking at some of them. Mm. And then it was really what did it was when I wrote this song called Your Grace is Enough and and Chris Tomlin recorded it. And that was when I started getting introduced to, you know, sort of, oh, wow, there's this whole other world of of hymns Mm. that I didn't I didn't grow up singing. And uh, and they meant a, a lot more to me, I think, in a way, because I just I'd been through a lot of life. That's really fascinating to me, because one of the things I wanted to ask you about and you, you've kind of answered it in a way um, already, or at least I can can guess how you'll answer. But, you know, I've kind of wondered about, um, you know, like like your song, Lord, I Need You, for example, is it pulls elements from, you know, every hour I need thee, you know, you're, you're pulling stuff from traditional hymns, but this is still very much a a new song that is weaving in some of those threads rather than just completely, you know, it's not like doing a cover of, of a hymn in a different context. It's, it's repurposing. 
interested in in asking you is, you know, when you're doing something like that, is the idea um, to tap into a sense of nostalgia or a sense of um, tradition that people may have have grown up with, but shine a new light on it? Or is the assumption that, um, you know, a lot of these songs are so old and, and church attendance has declined in this country to the point that a lot of these are new elements. So rather than tapping into something that people are familiar with, we're grabbing elements that are timeless and, and amazing that we want to re present to people rather than to, you know, necessarily present them in a new light, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I, you know, what I would say is that I think the first time you do something, it's a happy accident and you don't realize until after the fact that you just caught lightning in a bottle. Mm. And I think what happens after that is the same thing happens for every creative person, which is you're fighting your ego. Uh, and because you're constantly going, do I need to keep doing this? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, am I supposed to keep doing this? Um, what happens if I don't keep doing this? Um, you, you try to recreate the conditions. That one was literally... It was five people around a picnic table. And I, I, you know, I always say is I don't, I've never uh, searched out one of those moments. They always just seem to find me. Mm -hmm. So Lord, I need you started out. Um, I was traveling to a, a writing camp in Atlanta and I was on a plane and I was just kind of sitting there meditating and thinking and I'd asked my wife's mother, my mom, my mother-in-law who'd been my mother-in-law for like two months. But I like, I knew like she was from like a real charismatic church and they like, they pray for everything. So I was like, well, Hey, I'm going to go write some songs. Can you please pray for me? Mm. And, um, and on this flight, I like literally like had, like I got flooded with song ideas and it was a red eye. It, it, it was the conditions were not good for creativity, <laughs> right? Optimally speaking. But, but one of the thoughts I had was an image of a singular college student in a dorm room by themselves and thinking, what would they need to say to God? And what would they want to say? And so I just sort of went with that, with that sort of abstract or semi abstract image. And uh, it was, it was sung by like community. I don't want to say committee because that, that can have a negative connotation, but it really was, you know, uh, this guy, uh, great, great songwriter, Christian Sandfield. He sang the opening line, Lord, I come, I confess. And then, um, and then his wife showed up to pick him up and he had to leave. <laughs> and, but it literally, we'd been sitting there kind of going where how do we start and then it was like once that started it like it got the ball rolling in such a massive way yeah. and um and it was uh a guy by the name of daniel carson who said you know this 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 sounds like lord i need thee every hour which i said what's that <laughs> <laughs> and they're like it's the hymn and so then we pulled it up and you're absolutely right we we uh he sang I need thee. Oh, I need thee. And I just thought was like, well, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Mm -hmm. 
And then someone sang, every hour I need you. And then um, I'm a big fan of harmonic walk-ups. Mm. Uh, like harmonic movement. I just, I I love, love 16th century counterpoint, like Bach. To me, it, his understanding of harmony is foundational in my musical formation. So, uh, so I just, you know, the melody just kind of followed the bass line. Mm. Uh, my one, da, 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 da. You know, and it's also, I was a big fan of David Foster and he is the king of parallel six. Ah. So uh, it's like, if you like, if, if, if you, if you want to write a song for David Foster, just use parallel six <laughs> in your right hand on the piano. Um, so I think there was all those elements of it that it, it, you're right. It's the synthesis of a lot of things. There's hymnodies there. Uh, modern pop kind of sensibility is there um it the you know ryan tedder always says that have your highest note in the chorus um which this which that one does and i can honestly say that i did it and the times that i've tried to do that it never works but i'll fall into it and go well here we are again wasn't <laughs> wasn't trying to do this um, it's similarly like on my new album there's a song called Leaning As I walk this world I'm held by you I am leaning on your everlasting love What a fellowship What a joy divine What a priceless gift God I'm yours on a song with a bunch of people and uh we had written a verse which was the chorus of this song which i've done that before and let my yes be yes my no be uh my no be no uh let my no be no to the things of this world of our eyes and fall up a center of all and i just sang i'm leaning on your everlasting arms and then i thought oh wait i think that's an old hymn <laughs> <laughs> and then go then go look it up you know, and I, I, I tend to think that these ideas are kind of floating around in the ether. Mm. And, you know, we all creative people are all just kind of built with the same antenna. And, we're, you know, it's just one person's on one day is tuned better mm. than everyone else's. Mm. Well, that's yeah, maybe that's how two collaborators can can actually feel like, yes, this is right. And we both agree that this is right because they 100 you know, found that thing that's it, floating it, there. Yeah, it physiologically feels right. It isn't just a it isn't just an intuitive thing. You actually feel it in your body. Yeah. You know, when you were describing that that walk up that you put in Lord I need you and kind of where that came from, yeah. I you were kind of helping me come to understand, you know, why I appreciate your music so much cuz you you're talking about um an a deep understanding of complexity that that you then manifest into like this really functional simplicity when it actually gets to the song itself, which is something that for people that don't really um, know what it means to write music, like, you know, for a church context, there's an element of simplicity that's really helpful to these songs, especially if they're to be used and sung again and again by people in churches um, around the world. 
Now, of course, you have a degree in jazz piano, so you deeply understand musical complexity. Um, how do you uh, tread that line between you know, wanting to sort of satisfy some of your own creative impulses, which may lean toward complexity, but putting them in, in a format that's going to be digestible and, and usable in the context where they're needed? I think as you get older, you realize you can't put every chord in a song. Right. <laughs> and and you start to appreciate the the notion and some people are just older souls at this and they're just they're less conflicted maybe or I, I don't know exactly what it is. Like I don't want to say it's all ego because I don't I don't think it's necessarily ego. It's just you just you you get to like a a zen like place of you I you start to hear things for how they really are and most of the best music and this is this is a general generalized statement i understand i'm making of this is a blanket statement so i you know i i i feel like i've learned the power of specificity more in the past 2 years than not but most great songs are a combination of simple elements put together mm. So uh, even you take the Christmas song, you know, Mel Torme wrote it. Uh, that, that song's got so many changes. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but but you don't you're not thinking about the changes. You're thinking about the melody. Right. And you're thinking about the lyric. So the thing about a song is that ultimately. uh harmony does what i've come to understand in songwriting is that harmony comes you know harmony is really meant to be a selfless third wheel hmm. to to melody and to the lyric you know and, and i think especially now in this day and age rhythm is is more and more of like the third party mm -hmm. there's less and less harmony in music period so i i think for me it's just understanding there's a dance between all those elements and they can't all win out right. at the same time right like someone has to take a back seat at any given moment um in order for and it's not even like that's the interesting thing about about christian art or art that's inspired by Christianity or comes or comes out of a Christian worldview is that there's a sort of weird misnomer that the art is just a container for something else. Mm. And I don't, I actually don't think that that's the case. I think that art in and of itself is a transcendental it's, it's a form of beauty. Yeah. And the lyric could actually also be another layer of beauty. Mm. But the music in and of itself, like the, the song in and of itself is a good thing because it's a piece of art yeah and it doesn't need to do anything else it like it doesn't have to produce some some form of like measurable result in order for it to be good right. because that's weird like then then we're like then we're just in another weird form of meritocracy hmm. right wow. right so, so i yeah to me i think with songwriting it all that to say it's like it's those those there's all these things you know you've got melody you've got harmony, you've got rhythm, and then you've got the lyric. And it's like, how are these things all working together um, to communicate 
just whatever it is that the writers are trying to communicate in the most honest, truest sense. Right. You know, when you talk about, you had, had mentioned the song, Your Grace is Enough, uh, a while ago, which Chris Tomlin covered. So remember your people, remember your children, remember your promise, oh God. Your grace is enough, your grace is enough, your grace is enough for me. Hey, that's the song that you wrote solo and you know when you're writing solo you're you know you're calling all the shots um and you've got other songs that have been very successful that have been co-written i think about songs like uh i lift my hands which you wrote with chris tomlin or come as you are which you wrote with david crowder the reason i bring this up is because co-writing is always you know kind of a push and pull and you're you're hearing each other's ideas you're also saying oh that doesn't resonate with me not only are you dealing with people who are artists here, but you're dealing with people where um, the term like worship leader or praise leader uh, applies. And you can have artists who don't necessarily have leadership uh, qualities, but for a person who is in a church or religious context, leading people in expressions of worship I mean, that that takes a certain set of skills to be that type of leader. Um, but then you get a bunch of people in a room who are not only artists themselves, but also we know people who have strong leadership skills. I would imagine that potentially ups the ante of of even just co-writing because you have to have a certain um, strong personality and a certain vision to to be a leader and you get multiple leaders. Um, I imagine it, it can create some incredible combustion, uh, both creatively, but also just in terms of trying to identify what the direction is going to be. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. Like, I, um, I think that when you're writing, I think anytime there's a co-write and it's a group of people, I think like I've written more kind of country sounding songs or Americana, I guess it would say folkier sounding songs. And it's like, you're just trying to make the lyric, the truest and the, and the melody, you know, you're just trying to make it feel the truest thing it can be. There is an element of when you're writing pop music that you are, and it's similar to writing worship music, you start catering it or you start, constructing a song around the range of a specific voice uh and that and that becomes almost like a process of elimination huh. of like well you know like if i was writing with chris for example like chris is a tenor <laughs> I, i'm i'm definitively a baritone <laughs> like, i always joke and say like i have a certain amount of high notes above uh, an E above middle C, but I only have so many a night. And once, <laughs> once I sing them, they're gone. Like they don't come back. <laughs> so, so for me, I think writing around someone's range sort of becomes a de facto way in which you start catering a song towards someone. And some of that is that there are someone else, someone can sing an idea 
in one key, but then all of a sudden you raise it a minor or a major third or a fourth, and it sounds like a truer, more focused, more three-dimensional version of what it's trying to be. Mm. So sometimes, you know, the first time I heard the melody of In the Name of Love, if it wasn't Bono singing it, if it was Bowie, would it have been a powerful? Mm. Yeah. I mean, it'd be good. Right. It's a great melody. It's, you know, but... I can hear him doing the verse. a young Irishman who now I know from reading his book is still trying to prove himself to his dad and is just, and is, and is coming singing from a place of deep conviction mm. and just yelling at the top of his lungs. And it sounds like his vocal cords are like, there's like a saw blade cutting through them, like in the best way. Yeah. And it's like, oh man, sometimes a song becomes intrinsically linked to the person singing it mm. in the sense that like you can get a whole room to sing along but their voice is like the is the match so yeah uh, yeah i mean i think with writing worship music sometimes you write a great song with a group of people and everyone's like it's sort of in the middle of the room and you're all staring at it like you've just found the Ark of the Covenant and you're like, well, all right, who's going to carry it? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and then other, and then other times it just, it starts to go, Oh, this song seems to be coalescing around this one voice hmm. in the room and let's get behind them and let's make it the best that it can be. Yeah. And it, and it still might catch on with, you know, the whole world. I mean, so what a ridiculous proposition. They're like, the amount of ego required to say, let's write a song we think the whole world is going to want to hear <laughs> and sing. You know, it's it's interesting you even bring up like the the roles or who who's going to kind of like take this and, and move the ball forward. Um, because I, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, in, in music and in discussion of music, we, we love our categories. And um, we love to sort of unintentionally pigeonhole artists and pigeonhole people. And you'll say, well, this this guy's a writer and this guy's an artist. Um, you have defied that and, and you've been both Be people respect you as someone who can come in and help them write a song, but also you're able to, to put out your own artist projects and the same, you think somebody writes worship music or somebody's a singer songwriter and you've defied those categories as well. You're able to live in this kind of, this kind of space that, that I, I don't really know of anybody else that's, that's occupying all these same, these same, you know, kind of creative identities at the same time. And I'm curious if that's something that is um, that just comes naturally and easily, or if you have to kind of plan your time out in a way to say, I, I need to give some time to Matt, the writer, and I need to give some time to Matt, the artist, and I need to give some creative space to uh, songs that are for the church, and I need to give some creative space to songs that are just going to feel like, you know, pieces of art. Uh, how does that balance happen for you? Yeah, I think... I think where I've landed with it, because it's, you know, that's, that's like an ongoing question, right, Paul, like you're, you're all I'm, I, I feel like every five years, I'm asking, okay, do the terms and conditions still apply yeah. <laughs> on the box that I checked five years ago with this whole thing. And, and I think that that's discernment in life, you mm -hmm. know, it's the constant process of asking, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I who I'm supposed to be? Am I loving the people 
in my life the way I'm supposed to love? Am I, am I showing up, you know, Mm. um, five years ago, my kids couldn't all communicate eloquently with words. Uh, but they, they can now. And, and so it's, it, it, that, that has to make a demand on my life, on my, on my process. And so, but the default thing with creativity where I tend to land is that when I tend to keep my house in order, uh, meaning like my, my life, who I am as a person living out of a mindset of abundance and not scarcity. Mm. When I tend to not be so precious with my ideas as if, uh, I remember watching an interview with Hans Zimmer and he talks about every time he makes a film, he's desperately afraid the faucet of creativity isn't going to turn turn on again because he's like, I don't know where this stuff comes from. And I, I resonate with that a lot. I resonated with a lot during COVID because even though it's funny, I was writing a lot of songs. I felt like I wasn't writing any songs Hmm. and that, didn't really have to do with anything. It wasn't time management. It wasn't, I was, I was literally writing songs. It was the mindset of scarcity versus abundance. It was the thing of there's not enough to go around somehow. But when I look back on my best seasons of creativity as a songwriter and as an artist, it's when I didn't hold anything precious. Hmm. I just did it because I loved doing it. Yeah. And, and, and it was out of that sense of love and freedom that I, I, I would find an idea and, and, and I think it requires honesty with yourself as a writer to go, this is a great song idea, but I can't carry it as an artist, the, the place it needs to be carried. Yeah. <laughs> but I think so-and-so could. Mm. And I think it requires a certain level of like surrender and open handedness with the gifts that you have. And the willingness to share them. I didn't know this. I, I found this out two weeks ago. The song Mystery Girl by Roy Orbison. It was written by Bono on the Edge. Oh, wow. Wow. I mean, isn't it, yeah. that, that was like a massive song for Roy Orbison. And it's literally, it was written by those guys right before they wrote, uh, before they made Octoon Baby. Which if you know anything in the story of U2, they were like, they were trying to find the big enough acts to chop down the Joshua tree, metaphorically right. speaking for them, like as a band, like they were at a real crossroads. They were on the verge of breaking up. And yet, even in the midst of that, here are these, these two guys, you know, wrote this song for Roy Orbison. Um, and so I, I tend to look at that and as a signpost to affirm me in the sense of like, I think as a songwriter, when I'm writing an idea, I, I tend to start to know whether Matt Marr, the artist is supposed to sing this. Mm. And, and in some ways it is two different people. It's the same person and it's not the same person. Um, and I think Matt Marr, the songwriter is not set in stone. Um, and, you know, to point out what you said, Scott, like I've had a very, very musical background. I've been, very fortunate to be part of a lot of different contexts and i i want to let that all come out mm-hmm. yeah i've got to let it come out i got to find it it doesn't mean it's always going to be in the avenue that i want it to be but but it'll find its way out eventually yeah so 
yeah, I think the thing with uh, with the creativity thing, though, is just it feels like when I'm worrying about it the least is when it's operating at its best. So my wife was the worship leader uh, at a church for about 15 years uh, until a spectacular uh, explosion and parting of ways occurred earlier this year, which can only happen in uh, church settings. <laughs> um, but, but that's, uh, that's another story. Um, but really, as I look through like these song titles and I'm looking at songs like your grace is enough or I lift my hands, um, Lord, I need you. He shall reign forevermore. I'm like, I know these songs from, uh, from my wife who was teaching them, you know, to the congregation. And I'm also just now putting together that Chris Tomlin recorded all these. So I think my wife might have a crush on Chris Tomlin. So we'll, I'll talk to her about that <laughs> yeah, later. Um, that, yeah. But, but what I find interesting, and I always bring this up when we talk with guests who are, are having success in, you know, praise music is that, you know, and, and I'm going to hopefully not alienate both my co-host and our guest, but I don't, I don't listen to Christian radio, so I don't know these songs because I heard them on the radio. I know these songs because I learned them in, like, oral tradition. I learned these songs mm. at church. I learned these songs, you know, from my wife, singing them around the house and teaching them to me so that I could play them in the band with her uh, at church. Or And I think that a lot of people in that church would say they know these songs because she taught those songs. That's where they first heard them. And I think, you know, Paul could probably say the same as somebody who leads uh, worship music is that a lot of the people who are learning these songs aren't necessarily hearing them on the radio. And I don't think there's any other genre of music where that is the case. Like, I think this is the only genre where the recorded version of the song um, might not have as much exposure as the oral tradition version of the song, which I kind of have this theory that like worship music is the last true folk music in that it's, it's the music that's passed around orally as much as it is via recording. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I was going to say it, hearing you say that as a drag, because one of my favorite bands I used to go watch was in the nineties in my hometown was this alternative band called bung and they used to do a song called in and out of grace which was a mud honey song and i never knew it was a mud honey song <laughs> i just loved the song right and then and then one day i i learned it uh that oh, someone's like oh yeah it's a mud honey track and it was like oh you mean a band could cover someone else's music like it it just it hadn't it like for some reason it hadn't really dawned on me before. Right. It was weird. Well, especially Anyways, covering but, a contemporary, you know, of of them, you know, a band that was out at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think that you're absolutely right in the sense that it's keeping a tradition alive of the power of a song is greater than the voice singing it. Which is what, you know, it's what every every songwriter and every artist longs for. Everyone wants a song to exist beyond their voice being the one singing it. Mm. You know, you don't want your voice to be the last voice yeah. to sing the songs that you write. Yeah. 
it's you know what i mean mm-hmm. like it, it's um and i think it's even harder i can't imagine if you're like a mainstream artist when you write one of those songs like like for me i have this element of like perspective i guess in the sense of saying like like next year will be the 10 year anniversary that i sang lord i need you on a beach with three million people now i i know that they were not there for me (laughs) not a single person was there to hear me sing a song i wrote but everyone left hearing a song that i wrote yeah and so it's a weird tension that you carry writing something that you go to a random church and a bunch of people are singing it and you're like i don't know any of these people yeah i don't even know if they know who i am as a person or as an artist but they know my song Hmm. and there's a real healthy sense of orientation in it in the sense of saying this isn't about you anymore Hmm. uh your songs have now you will have certain songs that they they go they go they will go they're like kids they will go further than you ever will Hmm. yeah and there's like an element of surrender of saying well that that one's not about me anymore and that's okay maybe none of it ever was um so I think it's healthy in a way. And, and I think it's a really important tradition of what you're saying that the church has to continue. Um, uh, you know, which is, and it's, 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 it's interesting because now because of technology be, and like it's, it, it, uh, more and more, there's more and more music being made more and more churches, are having songwriters on staff. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, that writer knows what's going on in their community right. better than I ever would. Right. So I, I think it, it makes you realize that none of it's permanent. Yeah. Um, and the stuff that gets sung long after you're here, you don't really have any control over. Yeah. So it, it's, uh, it's a moment in time and it's, it's a, it's an interesting thing because like as a writer, you write something and if it, if it becomes memorialized, um, like, I mean, just at the beginning of this conversation, the fact that I recorded a song and, and Paul, you were like, it's got so many Roy Orbison isms in it. Yeah. I mean, what a tremendous compliment to Roy Orbison right? right. and to his team. You, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I think as a, as a songwriter and as a musician, it's like if someone was like, dude, your syntax is as good as Charles Wesley. Right. That would be a real specific, but it would be such a, it would be a huge compliment, I think, to whoever the hymn writer was. But it's probably going to happen long after you're gone. <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's, I've often thought how crazy it is that we have a word and the word is Beatlesque. And and there's no other. You don't say anything as Elvis esque or or Stones esque. Really, Beatle esque has become a word though. Um, yeah. And these half these men are still walking the earth, which is amazing. Um, the 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 thing that you were just talking about in terms of sort of 
being able to separate yourself and say, hey, this is not about me. You know, they're not here for me, uh, even though they're, you know, walk away hearing your song. I mean, that that really ties in well to me with the concept you mentioned about the songs kind of being in the ether. And you you sort of, you find them together. I've often thought that we find songs more than we create them. In fact, I wrote something the other day that said, I don't even think that, that we're writing songs. I just think we're the first ones to hear them. And we hear them on our heads <laughs> before before anybody hears them out in, in the world, because I, I feel like, you know, God's writing them, he's writing them in, in giving a fragment to me and a fragment to you, and then when we come together, we find how the fragments fit, because maybe that's because the idea of creating something is, just blows my mind, and it's much easier for me to wrap my mind around the fact that it was there for me to find than than to create you know um and it sort of gives me this idea of like oh i was invited to participate in this song um and it's not a false humility it's just that i i think you know when you stare at a blank page and you think what's well, my responsibility to fill it that's uh, that's almost too much pressure to carry oh man yeah that and then the problem is is then you're back in your ego yeah and that's like like if you're performing a song, your ego is probably one of the best things to have access to. Right. <laughs> but when you're writing it, you kind of you want to you kind of want to be checked out. Mm. Um, I think. Yeah. Um, no, I'm with you. Be, because you want to be the most vulnerable, truest version of yourself that you can muster up. Yeah. You know, which. You know, to, to go back, you you know, I didn't I only partially answer the question that, that you asked, you know, which is like switching gears. How can I switch gears? And I, I think a lot of it is the context of your life informs the areas in which you're comfortable being yourself. Hmm. And, you know, I played in clubs before I played in churches. I guess I I sang in a church once in the third grade and it didn't go that great so then i stopped <laughs> i was so nervous i got everyone to stand up for the psalm response which in the liturgy you're just supposed to say please repeat it and then they stand for the gospel and i got so nervous i said please stand for the psalm so i made everyone stand up while i while i sang power so um it, you know but for me it's like i found my voice first I musically my voice uh, playing in playing in a in a bar in a bar band mm. and then I found I feel like I found my singing voice and I think my heart and my soul singing at church and now you know some days the spirits in the church and some days the spirits uh down at the pub yeah <laughs> Well, and and that may be why there's so much there's there's both grit and glory in in the stuff that you write. I mean, there's, um, man, there's a song called "The Spirit and the Bride." Um, yeah, and I uh, that's a song that I that I would lead in church, um, and I would often open with it, you know, because it's such an, the song's an invitation. Um, Very much, but man, it gets to like I, I just pulled up the lyric now as we're talking, and and. I would just wait. My heart would just wait until I got to that second verse. And I, I'll get choked up if I say it out loud, but I'm, I'm going to try it anyway. For all the fatherless looking for approval. For all the daughters who've never heard they're beautiful. For all the fatherless looking for approval. For all the daughters who never heard they're beautiful. Let everyone who 
I mean, I have daughters now, and I I didn't at the time that I that I started leading that song, but to to sing something like that in church meant so much to me because I I feel like I was getting really used to these lyrics that were just sort of about concepts, concepts about God, and that brought in just tactile, real life pain into this glorious worship song. Um, and now that you're sort of identifying where both the club and the church <laughs> sit in your formative experience, I, I, I understand how, how you felt the, the boldness, because it takes a boldness to put that kind of imagery next to one another. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, am, have people responded to that song the way I have? You know, it's the thing of like, um, that the people that have heard it yeah i mean people have said like wow this song's really um like it's my favorite song off that album yeah. uh, album was called the love in between and what's interesting is that lord i need you is actually supposed to be on that album huh. at the 11th hour i wanted to record the song and uh, my A&R guy was like, ah, we're good. I think we got enough songs <laughs> on this album. And then that album tanked, which bummed me out because I wanted people to hear that song. That song, when I wrote it, it meant a lot to me. Yeah. Um, because it, it, you know, I think I had been, it was probably, I'd just gotten married, um, you know, uh, I think, my wife and I both have, you know, we both partied in college. Right. And so I think there's just, there was a realness to our relationship and our, um, in our, and our coming together that inspired me in such a profound way. And she was such a huge encouragement of me writing stuff that like, just you know sonically and musically or lyrically was 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 it would just say things plainly you mm. know and i think sometimes like what you're saying like sometimes the idea with worship music is we're it's this there's such an obligation to say things that are true on two levels so like there's so much focus on is what we're saying theologically accurate. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that can actually, it sounds funny to say this, but poetically speaking, it comes, a, it, it comes at a cost of not feeling true. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's true on paper, <laughs> but it doesn't feel like, like the words that you're using, it doesn't feel like you actually even believe it. I can't tell if you believe it. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's shot at you from a distance. It's not yeah. handed to you up close. And I think it needs to be filtered. I think, I think theology filtered through the human experience yeah. is the most profound and the most potent. Yeah. Which I think is what songwriting, you know, it, songwriting is truth-telling. All songwriting is truth-telling. So I think it's that thing of you, you have to make a decision to say, well, I got to try to write this where it it's, it's something I believe mm. 
and it actually sounds believable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's man. I love that. All songwriting is truth telling. I yeah. think that is, we need to put that on a, on a t-shirt. Um, <laughs> Well, Matt, man, thank you for uh, spending some time with us today to uh, talk about your songwriting process. So many great albums, so many great songs. The most recent record, The Stories I Tell Myself, uh, very cool. We want to encourage everybody to uh, to check that out. And um, we just uh, appreciate you spending some time with us. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks for listening. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, Please take a moment right now to subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can keep up with us on Instagram at Songcraft Conversations or Facebook at Songcraft Show. To join our team and help support our content, become a Songcraft patron at patreon.com. Visit patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can always find us at songcraftshow.com. 